Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Kate Mayer, Assistant Professor at Kyoto University of Foreign Studies. Kate, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I survived the online term. How are your eyes? I'm <laughs>、um, suffering. I had to buy some special blue screen glasses、ah. to deal with the fatigue. Could you use your research budget for that? <laughs> I'm hoping to add glasses and masks to that, yes. I was thinking about doing the, the blue, what's it called? Blue screen glasses? Yes, blue screen glasses. They're good. People say they're a placebo, but I, I found that it took the headaches away. Because I find I play the, the video game Plants vs. Zombies for,、oh, okay. for hours at a time, and I think I'll use it for that. I can't concentrate so much on reading academic papers, but I can play this, this really dumb video game for hours at a time, and it, it does hurt after a while. <laughs> it will help. It will get you through. I'm sure they'll help you get you through. Thank you, playtime. All right. Well, today we're going to be talking about an article that you recently wrote with Jim King Observing Anxiety in the Foreign Language Classroom Student Silence and Nonverbal Cues. Can you talk a little bit about the background of this paper and why you wrote it with Jim King? Well, first of all,、um, Jim King, Dr. Jim King, is my supervisor for my PhD.、Um, and as you know, he's written seminal papers about silence in the classroom. And for my PhD, I want to look at the relationship between silent behavior in the classroom and how it's connected with anxiety about speaking in the classroom.、Um, So, this paper is the first study for my PhD thesis, and it's really just an exploratory study、um, to get me away from the kind of the teacher perspective of the class and how students participate and my expectations. And I just really wanted to step back and sit more in the students' side and Get their perspective. So that's what I did with this paper. So you're a PhD candidate at the University of.、Uh, he, taught, he taught me how to say it. I'm still scared <laughs> of it. Lester. Lester, yes.、Um, and Jim King, Dr. Jim King, some of his citations appear in this paper. If people would like to listen, there's actually an interview with Jim King on the website right now. Actually, there's a, there's a few citations if people would like to push pause and listen to, which I would recommend. One is Seiko Harumi, which is a paper which you cited in this paper, which I love.、Um, there's the Jim King paper, 2000, 2013. You also referenced Dat Bao. There's another episode with Dat Bao.、Um, Christina Gunot and Rebecca Oxford, they're going to be coming on the show as well. So, and I, I, yes, myself was cited <laughs> in this paper. Which was quite a thrill. I actually, I had actually played, my mind played a trick on me. I thought, I thought something strange was happening.、Um, so that's the first time that's ever happened to me. And I, that was a, that was really cool. I, I, that was a total surprise. I wasn't expecting to see that. So that was cool. Yes, you were, you're absolutely there. And as I was saying <laughs> earlier, you are on my reading list for this summer of all the, Papers that have backed up during the past few months of online teaching, things I want to read. 
Um, so I'm looking forward to hearing more about your Fitbit and anxiety work. And also, uh, one of yours is on my reading list, your chapter in the book, East Asian Perspectives on Silence in English Language Education, mm. chapter five, examining L2 learners' silent behavior and anxiety in the classroom using an approach based on cognitive behavioral th theory. Yes. Uh, we'll get into that later on in the show, but I definitely recommend people purchase that book that was edited by Seiko Harumi and Jim King. So um, I think I told you before, it's starting to feel like this virtual party where <laughs> we're, we're kind of running into people. I didn't know there were, there were, when I started studying silence in language learning anxiety, I kind of thought I was the only one around. I'm definitely the only one at my school focusing on it. Mm. And I kind of had this feeling that there weren't that many people doing it. But now that I kind of started this podcast series, you know, I reached out to Seiko Harumi and then, and then Simon Humphreys, who, who I, who I, who I knew, but I didn't know he was studying silence so much. And then I'm starting to meet all of these, uh, different people that are interested in the same thing that, that I'm interested in. So it's, it's kind of a cool thing. Do you find it when you go to conferences and things, you don't find so many presentations about silence and anxiety in Japan? Yeah, that's right. And, um, I think you, you get a bit of a funny look at first when you say you're researching silence and then like, but aren't you, you know, a teacher of language? And it, you get a kind of a bit of a, what, reaction to it. Um, but as you say, I think the number of people interested in it has grown. And as Jim put in one of the papers, th there's this shift coming. Silence was never really at the heart of the investigation into anxiety. Mm. But I think that's changing. Um, rather than looking at just the talk side of you know how much output and um, how we evaluate our students based on how much um, verbal participation they produce in a class you know I think people are starting to look at the other side um, and looking around it a bit more to, for more subtleties there in how people participate. Is that related to the market the marketness theory which you mentioned in the paper? I don't know about that. The marketing theory for me was the purpose of my research was not to look at the amount of silence that is going on in classrooms. Um, Dr. King has done that. And I think anecdotally and, you know, coming from our own experiences, we know that in Japan that's still a bit of an issue for some teachers. Um, they get they face this wall of silence when they go into the classroom. And I think it generates a lot of panic. And maybe, and just going back to your other question about the reactions I get to my research topic, I think some teachers are unsure about why it's valid and are perhaps a little apprehensive about it because silence in the classroom can often represent something negative. Hmm. Um, either about the student's ability or the teacher's own ability to get the students talking. It feels like we should create this very energetic classroom all the time full of talk. And um, that's not really the case, I think. And I think that Bao's book really brought that home to me, this idea of there is facilitative silence as well as the negative silence types. Well, you, you mentioned something in the paper that, that I agree with. There's this expectation 
of production. Yeah. But there's varied levels of expectation depending on who you talk to. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think, and especially when people are having their classes observed, there's this pressure they feel to get the students to avoid silence. Yeah. And that was something that um, Dat, Dr. Dat Bao talked about in, in, in his interview and in his research about how there's this inner production going on and, and silence is much more complicated than people think yeah. and that silence can be a healthy thing and that... But again, even, you know, you know, being in Japan, there's the, there's the Eikaiwas, these private language schools you know, for profit, which when I was teaching there, it felt there was, there was a bit of pressure, not only from the company, but from the parents. So we're paying you a bit of money. Uh, if I'm going to observe the lesson, I, 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 I want to see my child just, you know, babbling for 60 minutes straight. And that's good enough for me. Mm. Where, where Dat Bao would, would argue that, you know, no, some silence every now and again is okay. And maybe we need to reevaluate what's the ideal balance in the classroom. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, like you said, I, I, I'm surprised when people aren't – I'm surprised more people aren't studying this because you always hear that people are nervous and you always hear that Japanese students are shy and you always he- hear about these things over and over again. But no one I, – I, I wonder why – so I had a very visceral experience with silence. Um, I'm wondering why you you move towards this sort of research focus. I think it comes from a very personal um, perspective. I'm very shy. I'm a very anxious speaker. I get tongue-tied quite easily. My friends are still in shock that I'm a teacher. They, they just can't comprehend why on earth I would choose this profession. They cannot imagine me stand up in front of a group of people and speaking. Um and actually, when I was doing my teacher training, my TESOL training, the the leader of the department or the course said to me, you're going to be a good fit for Japan. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it comes from my own experiences of being in the classroom as a child and growing up, going into university and not being the most vocal person. But I was participating. Like that Bao says, I was, you know thinking of things what I wanted to say is just I didn't always verbalize it and I think that was a lot of anxiety and then moving to Japan and becoming a language learner here um that was the case too I'm I'm not the most chatty in English or Japanese um so I think that's part of the reason I became interested in silence and working in Japan you are faced with that silence in the classroom it's there and I think Anderson has written an updated version of his chapter in teaching English in Japanese universities Mm. I think you mentioned it in a previous episode um and he talks about you know the nails that you know stick up get bashed down kind Mm. of thing I think you know although that is a generalization as he says it is a reality so I became very interested in students that were more silent or quieter, like me. And was it because they were anxious or was something else going on? Or what are the reasons? Because students are rarely completely silent. It's very rare to get a student that sits silent all the time, right? I'm sure you know in your classes. They're quiet, but there's no student that's just always silent. They're they're bubbly. That when you, they come in from outside of the classroom, they come in and they're chatting away, and then they quieten down. And 
something happened in there and it was just very, very interesting to me. Now, what led you to pursue the PhD at Leicester? I wanted to um, work with Dr. King because he was interested in anxiety. I think anxiety was my first hook into this. And then the silence, like you said, it, it kind of came later. It was like, oh, yeah, that, yeah, why aren't, why aren't I looking at the silence? But the anxiety, I think, was first. Um, in my master's, I actually did motivation. And I was looking at ways to motivate students to speak up more in class. And I got them to do these journals. And by the end of the master's, I kind of realized it's not, I don't know, it's not really a motivation issue, actually. It's um, the things that the students are reporting. It's more connected to anxiety. They're nervous. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, I, I agree with you. I, I think the core issue is silence. And then that's the most interesting hook because it's a difficult thing to quantify or to explain or to predict, right? Um, and then once you start digging into silence, then you're seeing these perifer peripheral issues like anxiety and willingness to communicate and perfectionism and motivation and all these things on the outside. So I, I kind of agree with you. If you dig too deep into one of the peripheral things, it will always bring you back to silence. And then at some point you have to figure, you, you have to focus on silence, right? Because th there's too many other factors going on and they could all be happening at the same time or at different times or at different frequencies or at different intensities, right? Yes. And I think we miss it because we're so relieved when students talk in the class. We're so, oh, this activity is working fine. Or, oh, these students, they can produce the target phrases we've been practicing do you know what I mean we mm -hmm. when we hear the talk we're like oh yes okay it's good and we I think I'll, well, I'll speak for myself sometimes you know I forget and to look around and actually look at really what is going on because if just a couple of students are speaking that doesn't mean everybody is speaking and there is silence going on in different very different forms and for different functions, some positive, some negative. But yeah, I think we can often focus on the talk because that's what we're trying to train them to do to develop their, their speaking skills. Um, and just coming back to you brought up marketness theory, I picked that up because I, you know, I believe there is positive and negative silence. And the marketness theory, I think, highlights unexpected silence so when students are given an opportunity to speak but they don't and it becomes an unexpected silence or a marked silence that's what I'm interested in because if Japanese students don't use a classroom as an opportunity to develop their speaking skills very limited opportunities outside of there well let's let's go over the timeline of this paper and where it fits into your PhD. So can you tell the listeners how far along are you on the PhD in this paper, Observing Anxiety in the Foreign Language Classroom, Student Silence and Nonverbal Cues? Where, where does that line up in your this PhD journey and what's coming after this? Um, a heart attack probably as I begin to write up. 
<laughs> you just got to try. You just got to don't try your best on other stuff. That's the key. <laughs> just focus on trying your best on this. Yes. Prioritize. I'll edit that out. <laughs> I have to just say, though, it's actually really nice to do this podcast because with the online teaching, I've just not been able to devote as much time to it. And I haven't had the chance to speak about my research for a couple of months. And it's just so nice to be back into it. Anyway, my my thesis, um, actually, the main my thesis is actually focusing more on the anxiety um, and using a cognitive behavioral theory based approach to supporting students that are anxious about speaking in the classroom. Um, so this paper is the first of three studies. And as I said, it's kind of just an exploratory study to look at what forms of silence occurs, the functions, and if any of those functions are related to anxiety. So is student silence a nonverbal cue of anxiety? And then the next part of the study is interviewing some of the students that did display anxious cues and working with them more to using a CBT based approach to kind of draw out where that anxiety is coming from. So CBT, the basic model is you've got your thoughts connected to feelings and behaviors. So if a student feels very anxious about speaking, perhaps the thoughts behind those feelings is something about fear of looking silly in front of classmates. And then the resulting behavior can be silence in different forms. And it, it can form this very ongoing negative cycle. So that was part two of this um, study. And that's actually what the book chapter is about, looking at one student and the assessment and formulation of her anxiety and her silent behavior. And the third and final part is an intervention study. So using some CBT-based activities to try to balance out thinking, not just positive thinking, but balance out their thinking. So when they have very negative thoughts about speaking up in class, just helping to balance those out and approach it from a different viewpoint. So, okay, I might look silly in the class, but is that 100% likely to happen? No, it's not. And then searching for evidence that that hasn't happened before and so on. So that's, that's the intervention? Yes. That's that's really interesting. So I'm going to be doing a much different kind of intervention. But we we talked about how our our research kind of aligns in the same way like I I have this hypothesis which which you share that if you think about something it has the potential to lower your anxiety or nervousness. Mm -hmm. So my I'm going to I'm going to give them a scale. So there's four there's four uh 10 item Likert scales on a scale of 1 to 10 how blank do you feel? For example, anxious or happy or whatever. So there's going to be two positive, two negative uh, for the 10, 10 items. And then for the, I'm going to do six, five items. And those are based on the Panis scale. So I don't know if you're familiar with those. And then having them work through those different emotions and rating them on a Likert scale. I have, I have a feeling, and that's my, my uh, advisors also think 
that not only will that lower nervousness, but that's an an intervention in itself, Mm. just self-reporting. Have you been exploring the concept that the act of self-reporting is an intervention in itself? Um, in a way, a bit different to the way you've been doing it, but definitely this idea of writing down their thoughts, looking for evidence to challenge those thoughts and coming up with alternative thoughts. Um, because when I was doing the assessment interviews to kind of look more deeply into where this anxiety was coming from, I'd ask them to report um, a specific example of when they felt anxious recently and to try to remember what they were thinking about. And I noticed during the interview that when they were reporting those thoughts, like, oh, I'm going to make a mistake, oh, I'm going to look stupid in front of my classmate, oh, um, they're going to laugh at me, you could see their body tensing up in the interview. So... I think absolutely it has the power to go either way. Mm. Negative thoughts can increase the anxiety and that can increase heart rate and you get sweaty, clammy. But as you're trying to do in your intervention, it can work the other way. By calming those thoughts down, balancing them out, it hopefully can help them to reduce, you know, calm their heart rate down, feel less shaky, their voice becomes calmer, and they can perform like more effectively. So you're going to do a, a retrospective intervention where they look back? Um, no, so what mine is is actually it's based on group CBT um, work where you get – I've got a group of students together – that have all reported they're anxious about speaking in class and they want to change. They're aware of their situation. And we actually do workshops. So, for example, one week we did eye contact. So we thought about um, why is it difficult to make eye contact when you're speaking in class? Mm. Um, what types of negative thoughts do you have about that? How does it make you feel when you're trying to make eye contact? What stops you from making eye contact? And then so by thinking about the CBT cycle and then practicing balancing out the thoughts. So, for example, well, if I look at my partner's face, they're going to look confused and then I'm going to lose my confidence and I won't speak. Trying to balance that out with, well, maybe my partner's face is not confused. I'm just assuming it's confused they're confused maybe they're actually just listening very hard and then by changing their thought like that then we do a little practice speaking activity and they try to make eye contact and remember these more balanced thoughts i see okay so yours is more of a long-term intervention where you're you're helping these you're helping these students with a variety of different problems almost like a therapy yes I don't like to call it therapy because you have to be very careful with that because that can raise a lot of alarm bells about mental health rather than mental well-being mm. um, I think especially in our context things like the word therapy counseling anything to do with 
sensitive topics like that you have to be very very careful and be like I'm not trying to be a therapist I'm not trying to be a counselor I'm not trying to fix you mentally um, but it is based on that it's based on this idea of you know adapting your thoughts confidence building positive thinking I think you know um, Oxford Rebecca Oxford and Christina Kno have done that um, and there's a lot of self-access learning centers now in Japan and they're trying to do a lot of these types of confidence building activities like confidence building journals um, and self-directed learning, self-reflective learning. So these are elements picked up from psychology um, and I've just chosen to focus on CBT. I see. So I think our research differs in one main way where I'm kind of focused on imagine there's two people with the same ability or the same personality and one is 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 facing debilitating effects of anxiety and one isn't mm. can I give someone an intervention in the moment to help them get over that in yeah. that precise moment where it happens like something very quick fast and they can get over it and continue to perform where, where, whereas yours is something that is something that's sort of worked on and maybe people have different, they're sort of attacking different issues they might, they might have, right? Yes, it's supposed to be giving them a, an additional skill set for their language learning um, to control their own thoughts by themselves so when they need it. So whereas you're trying to pinpoint the moment they need that support, yeah. I'm trying to give them the skill set to be able to do that for themselves when, when you're finished the phd are you interested in branching out to other areas because i'm i'm actually interested in other areas like performance anxiety or test anxiety um lot like lot, lots of other lots of other things i i kind of want to use this as a base but my background was music so again performance anxiety or you know sports anxiety i i think the this can my research is going to launch me in some some other directions. Are you planning on staying in the language learning field? or Because it sounds like this could be used in other areas too. Um, I think I probably will stay in language learning because it, it's quite a passion of mine. I'm a failed language learner <laughs> trying to <laughs> be a good language learner. Um, but I think I... I'm becoming more interested in rather than language teaching as such as I would like to work more with a variety of students coming into university and that transition. So not in the counseling office, but helping them with their general mental well-being to adapt to this very new situation. At the moment, I'm kind of focused on how they adapt from high school style um, classes, English classes coming into the university and being expected to speak up, communicate. Yeah. Um, but I think I would hope that what I'm developing here is a set of um, workshops and materials that could help a student transition into university in a, you know, multiple ways. There's, you know, there's a lot of challenges for first-year university students to overcome. Well, this is this is a worthwhile endeavor. So, if you if you feel like what, what did you say you're going to have a a heart attack? I it's going to be <laughs> worth it, I guess. <laughs> you. You're you're actually trying to help people. 
<laughs> well, that that's a nice way to think about it. Um, yeah. All right. Well, let's let's jump into the paper again. It's observing anxiety in the foreign language classroom, student silence and nonverbal cues. So I kind of want to start out with some of the scales that you used. Mm. Um, I'm you use the 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 state trait anxiety inventory. Um, that's something that I'll probably use in mine, maybe just as a sort of starting point, just to see who you know who has what kinds of anxiety. Mm. I might also use the FLCAS, um, but I. I'm not, I'm kind of interested in the moment to moment. So the FLCAS is so long mm. and it's, it's very retrospective. Um, so I'm just wondering why did you choose the scales that you did and when did you have the students, t uh, take these scales? Well, I use these scales, um, to make my own interview guide. Um, so I didn't uh, use them directly. Um, I kind of used them to influence what questions I asked. So I wanted oh, I to ask okay. quite a few about base. So the STI, um, the LSAS, the SPIN, and the FNE, they're all scales that are used for anxiety, general anxiety, and also social anxiety. So I'm very interested in the classroom as a social arena for social performance mm. so the anxiety yes it's speaking related anxiety but within that there's some factors of social anxiety there so I pick some instruments from social anxiety and then the the Horowitz scale the foreign language classroom anxiety scale I I used it because it's just so well known. And I think when you don't use it, you might come up with the question, well, why didn't you use it? But I looked at just parts of it. So I didn't really care so much about the final score. I was interested in the items that looked at um, communication apprehension and fear of negative evaluation. I'm also interested in fear of negative evaluation because mm. that that just comes up so many times. Like you said, it can happen in a social instance, but it also can happen in an assessment situation. Mm. So the, that's another thing. I mean, it's a little off topic from your paper, but test anxiety and language learning anxiety has, is a bit strange because test anxiety researchers say it's a separate construct of anxiety. And language learning anxiety researchers say test anxiety is a component of language learning anxiety. Mm. And that just is accepted at, at some point. I mean, Horowitz wrote about it and Young wrote about it. And then it's just, it's just there that, okay, mm. test anxiety is a part of language learning anxiety, but it's not really. I mean, it's something separate. It's, it's totally separate. And if you're talking about fear of negative evaluation, that could be fear of being evaluated by your teacher in a test, but it also could be a fear of being evaluated in a social situation. So, yeah. I mean, that's something I'm really looking at is that the fear of the negative evaluation, there's the social, there's, there's that big social pressure in Japan all throughout society and then in the classroom as well. And that's something that I found interesting about this online world we're, we're in. I find the students are producing much better production when they have to send me an MP3 
And, you know, there's no partner, but they're reading both lines of the dialogue. And their speaking is way better with much more confidence. And I think one of the main reasons is they're sitting by themselves. And But I mean, but again, that's not really a good thing. Uh, communication needs to be used in the world. You know, it's not, it's not, you know, but it is interesting, you know, when they're by themselves, they're, they're able to produce much better. Yeah. And I think part of that is they want to, well, for some students, I think they want to perform well for the teacher. You know, they, they're happy to do it for you and they're motivated to do it for you and they want to do a good job. I've had a similar experience with my classes as well. Um, but yeah, you're right. It, it's not, it's not really communication. It's a, it's speech, it's speech practice. Um, so yeah, I think, yeah, it's been very interesting being online this term. Um, I don't know if you want me to jump into that, but I just say quickly, I've actually adapted some of my, uh, thesis the intervention to do it online to help students adapt to this um online classes and online speaking and it's been really fascinating that some students prefer no eye contact so the we have to have the cameras off um for bandwidth issues so and some students are doing so well with that because they're not worrying about what their partner or the classmates are doing they just focus on speaking which is a bit like these videos or mp3 performances but some students are they can't concentrate because there's no response they've got no cues that what they're saying is actually coming across and being understood so it, it's been fascinating actually this term um, I mean, even talking about this concept of nonverbal cues, when I record my podcast, I prefer the video to be off one because there's better connection, but also it helps me to concentrate. So yeah. I don't have to worry about uh, being distracted by, I kind of get what students are saying. I mean, whether they're shy about the eye contact or whatever, um, for me personally recording the show, I can concentrate much better. If the video was off, I just thought of a, a study you could... You could, if if you if if people would let you do it, you could you could test whether blindfolded students produce better than unblindfolded <laughs> students. Yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's really it's very very interesting what affects you know each student and what makes them feel more confident to speak up. Yeah. Well, I guess if you were blindfolded, you'd be nervous about people making fun of you. So, yeah. I don't know. Anyway. Um, all right. Well, let's let's jump into the paper. I guess another thing that I'd like you to kind of explain is the classroom oral participation scheme, mm. which was developed by King. And I talked I talked to him about it, but I don't I don't remember the details so well. So can I, you talk? Can you just refresh my memory? I know he he I remember the joke he made, and he was surprised okay. that I laughed at it. <laughs> um, can you talk about the cops? <laughs> sure. So. Um, it, it's a paper instrument for observing participation in the classroom. Um, and it it's low inference, and so it's very easy to use. And you basically go minute by minute through the class, and you're checking off what behaviors you're observing. Um, now, there's a, there's a section that's for the class as a whole, and then there are 
are there's other sections where you can focus on one or two individual students. Um, he's actually he did do it for one minute intervals, so each minute he would tick off the kind of dominant behavior he observed, but he changed it to 30 seconds to get more accuracy and more detail. Um, some of the types of um, participatory behaviors to, that you could observe, like teacher-initiated speech, teacher response to a student, student-initiated speech, student responding um, either to a teacher or another student, um, group work, um, multi, like for example, a single group performing in front of the class, like a skit, uh, multiple groups, so you break them down into groups and they do some kind of activity, choral, like reading aloud, off-task melee, you know, like a little break time, and silence, um, which can include audio, like for example, if they're listening to a CD. And so basically you, what when I used it, I sat in the corner of the classroom, I scanned the class for one minute intervals and after one minute had my kind of watch and I just ticked the dominant behavior for the, oh, the class as a whole and then I was observing two individual students. You were observing two individual students? Yes, as well as the whole class. And why did you choose those two students? Um, well, so these observations, I did two or three observations per class group. The first observation, I didn't have, didn't use the cops. I just made notes. Okay. And that was just to get a general feeling of the class and to kind of pick out students that I was interested in following further in the next class observation using the cops. And I picked out for each class group, I tried to pick out a focal participant, so a student that I felt was displaying nonverbal cues of anxiety, and one supplementary participant who was the opposite, who was very communicative, talked a lot, and because I wanted the balance. When I did the interviews, I wanted to get both sides. Hmm. Um, so that's how I picked them. So. The way I chose the focal participants, the ones that was, uh, displayed cues of anxiety, they displayed silence, silent behavior. Um, for example, the whole class could be in a speaking activity, but they were not participating as expected, like they were quiet or using their smartphone or something like that. Um, other things like body language, like looking down at their desk, not at their partner, um, as I said, looking at their smartphone or some even made a kind of a, a wall, like they put their bag on their lap and sit back away from the group or their partner. So little, so those types of behaviors, I made a memo in the first observation and I just thought I, I'd like to follow up with the cops in the next one and then interview them. Now on page 125, you said, although the researchers had intended to use the cops for quantifying silent behaviors as used in previous studies, the resulting usage meant that they were able to generate rich descriptive details of participants in class participatory behaviors. So that's what you're talking about, right? You, 
Yes. So when Dr. King did his studies, he tallied up each type of behavior and he could you could see percentages of how much silence there was as silence had occurred in each class. Um, and I think, you know, one of the famous kind of quotes from his book is it's often it's something like one percent of student initiated talk in all these observations that he did. Mm. Um, but in when I did it, I didn't the class as a whole and the focal participant, the student I thought was potentially anxious about speaking, didn't notice a lot of overt silence. Mm. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. So there wasn't this, they, they were participating. They were, as expected on the surface. There wasn't a huge difference. But the more I did it, I noticed, for example, they're put into pairs and told to do kind of free talk for two minutes. Mm -hmm. And I would notice, you know, for example, with one focal participant, that she would ask the question at the beginning of the two minutes, like, how are you doing? And then she'd just sit back for the rest of the two minutes. She got the question out. And it looked like she was participating because she, you know, she'd started the conversation, but that was it. And she'd just follow up with a few mm, mm, and kind of shake her head, but generally kind of look down and let and her partner do most of the speaking. So she'd take on the listening turn and they'd wrote the teacher would rotate pairs. So they would do this kind of two minute bursts of free talk about five times. And I noticed she was doing that every time. She's getting the question out. I've done it kind of, that's what I assume, you know, I've done it. I've said my part. Now I'm just going to stop. And so patterns came up like that or finishing their turn early. For example, they had to speak for 90 seconds, like a kind of mini speech. And some students, each time, every partner, they would finish at the one minute mark. They wouldn't get to the 90 seconds. So the cops, because of the intervals, I could see these patterns emerging. Okay. And so after you use the cops, then you did the interviews. Yes. And how did you choose the, you, you did 14 interviews. Yes. How did you choose? So you said six focal participants and eight supplementary participants. These were chosen in the while you were using the cops or you had chosen these before you started doing the class i'm a little confused how how you came about with these 14 oh okay so for each class group um the first observation as i said i just i observed i made notes i didn't use the cops and that helped me to pick out the focal and the supplementary participants that i wanted to follow up with the structured observation using the cops. That was the second observation. Mm, okay. And then in most cases, it was one of each in each class group. And then where possible, I asked those two, the focal and the supplementary participants for interviews. So I kind of followed them over two, observ two or three observations. And so when you did these interviews... Were you concerned about your own bias? 
Yes, of course. Yes. Um, that's where the instrument guide came in. And I asked about hypothetical situations because I didn't want to say to them, look, you only speak for one minute. Not You were supposed to speak for 90 seconds. What were you doing? You know, <laughs> <laughs> they're anxious. They're potentially anxious already. I didn't really want to um, make that worse. So the instrument, the interview guide, um, I, you know, looking at all the other instruments that I based it on, I picked these nine hypothetical speaking situations in the class and I just got the students to tell me about it. Um, and I didn't, also I didn't say to them, how do you feel about it? I was like, tell me about it. So can you give me an example? Can you, can we role play here where, <laughs> I, where, where I'm being interviewed? Okay. Um, okay. So there's lots of speaking situations in the class, but before we get to them, just first of all, how do you even feel about going to your foreign language class? How do I feel about it? Yeah. Um, mm, uh, happy. Happy. And then I kind of tried to elicit why they feel happy. And then that was a kind of a warm-up, like, because I wanted to know how motivated were they about English? Did they enjoy it? And things like that. And then we moved into some more specific scenarios, things like... Um, so I saw in your class that you do a lot of pair work, you do a lot of discussions in pairs. Sometimes a teacher lets students choose who they work with and sometimes a teacher decides. What are your general thoughts about when you have when you work with a partner that you choose? Okay, so um all right, and scene, great. Uh, so, so, but what do you mean by hypothetical? Because it, it, I was thinking these were situations beyond the realm of what they actually experienced. Because it uh, sounds like these are these are situations they actually experienced. Uh, sorry, I guess what I mean hypothetical was I was trying not to force them into talking about themselves straight away until they were ready to do that. So I didn't use any. At first, I didn't start with concrete episodes from the observations. I didn't Got say, it. Okay. Like, oh, so in the class I observed yesterday, well, you weren't speaking very much during the free talk time. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> what was up? <laughs> I tried to be more like, if you work with a partner that Got you it. don't know very well, how's so, that? So you frame the questions in like a hypothetical uh, tone, and then you base those questions on those different scales we talked about before. Yes. Yeah, so, like, in uh, like, how do you feel about your language? How do you feel about the language classroom? That's a, that's a question from the Horowitz scale, right? Yes. Um, and then some of the ones from social anxiety are things like talking with somebody that you're familiar with versus someone you're not familiar with. So I ask them about classmates that they're friends with and classmates they're not so familiar with. Um, and things like talking in, talking to the teacher, but talking to the teacher one-to-one, -one, talking to the teacher in front of the class, talking to the teacher voluntarily, like you put your hand up 
talking to the teacher in front of a small group. So lots of kind of scenarios like that. All right. And some of the, your findings, um, one was the big one was using Japanese. When some students use Japanese, it made the other person uncomfortable. Where yeah. They felt, oh, I shouldn't be using English. And they were confused. You know, Yuma, who you mentioned, uh, was on the opposite spectrum where it was actually quite um, off put by that. Yeah. Where some students were just a bit confused or they thought, oh, I guess I should be speaking in Japanese now. And it kind of it, it kind of throws off the activity. So that that seemed to be one of the big wrenches yeah. in uh, in the did you did you get that answer a lot? Because it seemed like yeah. there was a few variants of responses based on how Japanese was affecting silence. Yes. Um, and I often followed up with the question. And again, this co comes from a social anxiety, um, those instruments is, okay, so if your partner is speaking Japanese, but you want to speak English, you've just told me you wanted to speak English then, do you feel able or did you feel able at that time to change it back into English? And most cases, the focal participants, are the ones that are potentially anxious and the, the more confident looking students, most of them said, no, I, I, I just couldn't change it back to Japanese. I just, uh, sorry, back to English. I felt like I just have to follow what my partner's doing. Did you ask them, why do you think your partner started to speak Japanese? No, I didn't actually. Um, I, some of the supplementary participants commented things like, well, you know, it can't be helped. They're just nervous or, you know, they they just don't, they're not motivated or they don't really want to speak in English for a long time. So, well, okay, can't be helped kind of thing. Um, but, but didn't another respondent say the other person speaking Japanese because my English is not good? That's what they thought. That's what they were worried about. Yes. Um, so they, yeah, in that case, they did say it was almost like a helping behavior. They didn't, or they didn't, they thought maybe their partner didn't want to show them up. Mm. Like, I'm, well, that, that's I'm, complicated in itself, right? Why yeah, someone would choose to, to code switch in a, in a social situation. Yes. And I think it just reveals how complex, you know, some of the students' worries are about speaking in English, even not just the class, but with one person, not in front of a large group, just with one person. They're, they're very aware of their partner's feelings or their group's feelings. They don't want to upset them with their own behavior. You know, they don't want, for example, I think it says in the paper, a very common example was they, if my English is poor, my partner won't understand or they'll be embarrassed for me or they'll just be confused and it's going to be awkward. Awkward for me, of course, but they're more worried about awkward for the partner and the kind of actually silence of, you know, this is awkward silence, it's not working and they just want to end it. And you also talked about fear of making mistakes. We don't need to spend too much time on that. That's pretty common in Japan. Yes. There's, there's lots of... There's lots of issues with fear of making mistakes, you know, perfectionism, the whole Confuci Confucianism. There, there's, so that I don't think we need to spend too much time on that. I kind of wanted to just move on to your two in-depth studies. You chose two students. Mm -hmm. um, 
I guess these are pseudonyms. They're not the real names. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So you chose Yuri mm. and you chose Yuma. Yes. Now, why did you choose these two and, and when did you choose these two? When did I choose them to observe them? When did you choose them to be the focus? Like why, like when uh -huh. did you say, oh, I'm going to hide, I'm going to, I'm going to give them pages in my paper. Okay. Well, in case of, I'll start off with Yuma. I wanted to include an example that where a student's perspective of their behavior, the word anxiety did not come up. Like, okay. I'm not scared of me. He didn't talk about vocabulary. I don't have enough vocabulary or I'm scared about making mistakes. He, he didn't mention the same things that the other um, focal participants did. His behavior looked similar. Like he sat away from the group. He looked down at the desk when he was made to work with a partner. He really focused on his textbook and he ended his speaking turn quickly. Mm. So those things are very similar. But in the interview, he just brought up very different reasons for um, what was going on for him. And I had just read a paper about psychological safety in the workplace and this idea that as a team, you have to believe in your team's ability for you to reach your goal together. So in the classroom, students have got to trust that their classmates are going to perform in a way that helps everybody to improve their English, or in this case, Yuma. Um, and he just didn't trust his classmates. He didn't see them as useful. Um, he didn't see them as effective for his language learning. And it really stressed him out when they used Japanese because he just felt this complete lack of control how to use his class time. He wanted to practice English, but his classmates that were speaking Japanese just wasn't going to help him out. Um, and he would only work with certain people that he trusted. I actually had a similar experience to this. Do you know the game Quizlet? Yes. So I use Quizlet as sort of, well, I used to when we were in the real world, um, in the classroom, <laughs> where we'd have a vocabulary quiz to start each lesson. And then I'd use the Quizlet game, uh, Quizlet Live. And then Quizlet, once the, the student logs in, the, the, the Quizlet app automatically assigns you know, randomly into Teams. And it's a cool way to get the students to sort of get out of their seats and find their partner without this huge sort of block with social stuff. It's, it's all random and it, we just do it every week and people get used to it. And this one kid came up to me and he just said, I don't want to play the game. Yeah. And he actually requested to me and I, yeah, that's fine. Uh, but it was it was interesting to me because I chose this game specifically to try to avoid some of this stuff. But it but I'm thinking now it might be related to what you're saying as far as your experience with your this student because maybe he didn't like the idea that it was random assignments and he'd rather choose. But you know what? That's not realistic. I mean, that like you can't always. Well, I guess you can. I guess you can choose who you're going to talk to. But I mean, that's that's kind of opposite of what we want to accomplish in our classes, right? We want to encourage students to be more comfortable communicating and possibly use those skills for different reasons as they, you know, 
as they, when they graduate and move on in their lives. Right. Yeah. Like how do we indicate to a student, I get what you're saying here, mm. but, um, is that our job to, in your opinion to, to help a student get over that problem? Well, I think one finding of this paper and just my research in general, and it is hitting me more and more, is the teacher's role. I kind of started this out with thinking, how do we support students and get help students to support themselves? Um, but I'm really starting to realize that the teacher's role, my perspective of my role as a teacher is actually very different to what the students expect or want from me. And I discussed that a bit in the paper where I say, you know, they want us to not just facilitate activities, but they want us to facilitate the interpersonal relationships in the classroom because it can be awkward for them to choose who to work with if you give them the freedom. Um, I mean, I've had classes where I'm like, okay, this time, guys, you can choose who you work with. And they look at me and like, no, can you do it, please? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I think, you know, that's something that's really hitting me more and more. And that's why also this paper I found, we've got to, teachers have got to be more aware of what silence means, looking for these cues of anxiety um, when they come out. And, you know, your intervention or your method is, you're trying to find ways to pinpoint it so you provide that support at exactly the right time for them. And I think that's, in these communicative classes, that's the teacher's role. The, the students want us to be there to support them and provide the right type of facilitation to help it work rather than just relying on it clicking. You know, oh, of course you want to talk. Talking is fun. You know, go. <laughs> you know? Of course, you're going to love it. It's not grammar. Go on then. And it, you know, some of the time we kind of feel like that, don't we? Like, oh, lucky you, you get to speak today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I mean, another factor that makes it more complicated is the emotion display rules and the, the, the facial expressions. And you did cite Matsumoto 1993. That's a paper that I read. And I also interviewed Matsumoto, his follow up paper in 2002. That, that's really interesting. Because A, I didn't know that there's universal facial expressions. I don't know if you, you read the another paper Matsumoto wrote about um, it was the the athlete blind judo athletes on the podium. He videotaped blind judo athletes on the podium and then um, non non-blind athletes. And he found that they had the same facial expressions for joy or sadness or whatever uh-huh. in the Olympics, because he was the Olympic coach. Right. The judo Olympic coach. And so um, so there, that was one thing. So we all have universal facial expressions, but then he also found that Japanese emote facial display rules differently than Americans. And then he also found that when Japanese are looking at someone's facial expression as compared to a, a, an American looking at facial expression, they have a different opinion of, of like how, how accurate that, uh, that facial expression matches the emotion. Mm. So there's all these complicated things going on, yes. which brings it back to your the nonverbal cues. Yes. So for example, a Japanese person could be looking at your emotion and you might be emoting uh, a display of a higher intensity of an emotion than the, than the student actually thinks Yeah. or, or vice versa to, yeah. to them. And, and so think, there's all this stuff going on. Yeah. And I think in the teacher as well, and when there's a cultural difference, it heightens all that anxiety the uncertainty 
of what it means. Um, I think that's why I've got so many, you know, facial lines from just overly smiling all week. <laughs> because <laughs> you know, I, um, I want to show them that, you know, I'm happy with what's going on. I don't want them to misinterpret, you know, what I'm feeling because, you know, I think they can be, even if they're not an anxious speaker, coming into a classroom, they might, they may have had an ALT, they might not have done, um, they, maybe it's your, their first non-Japanese teacher, I'm speaking all in English, um, facial expression is so important, it's something we forget about, you know, you have to really remind yourself, put the smile back on, and not in a bad way, but like, you know, reassure the students that everything's fine. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to, I think I've mentioned this before. I don't want to do this study, but I'd like someone else to do the study where they bring in actors and they have an actor sort of have one sort of kind of like the opposite of what you're saying, where they set the expectation where, look, I don't smile and this is my personality. And you tell the students exactly upfront, each of the different actors, what their personality is. And you set the expectation. And then through the course of a certain amount of weeks, you, you judge or you assess performance and you really see, does the emotion or does the personality of the actor affect the performance of, of the students? Because yeah, I mean, you always get those comments from Japanese students. I wish they smiled more, but I do wonder if the expectation, why can't they get over that? Like I, I get that we're in Japan and, and that's, that's expected here. But at the same time, the reason why we seem to be favored over non-native uh, English teachers is because they want the students to interact with a different culture, I'm assuming. Mm. So I don't know why they're trying to push us towards the smiley thing all the time. Well, that's just not realistic. It's just mm. not realistic in America to always have a smile. It's, it's painful just, as well. Well, I, I don't try. Like I said, I try hard on the, I, I focus my, <laughs> I can't do it. I mean, I, I, so I try to tell students in the beginning, I'm not sure. I, I'm wondering if, they they would produce better in your class where you're actually making an effort to smile and if they appreciate that or whether it's just the ex I, I, i'm curious about that i wish someone would do some sort of some sort of study like that because if, if it's proven that the performance is the same then all of us can just relax and don't feel like we have to paint on a smile on our face just to make everybody happy right <laughs> <laughs> it would save me a lot of um face cream <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, so now this is so this is kind of step one of your three step process of your PhD. What were your what were your main findings? One one thing that I stuck out to me was the idea of the the cell phone. How one student started looking at their their phone. <laughs> it's like I mean that's just rude, basically. Uh, and of course, I think anyone would be perturbed if you're in a conversation with someone and they just start looking at their phone. <laughs> yes, and she did it like every rotation with every different partner she had. Um, so it was a pattern I noticed and it was almost, but it was like a signal to tell her partner, a nonverbal signal to tell her partner, we're finished. This That's activity so is finished. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know if it's rude, but she was, she obviously felt uncomfortable to verbalize it. So she was just trying to be clear, but I, I've also read other things recently about, um, because of smartphones, it, it's a tool or um, crutch for socially anxious students in the classroom. I think this study was done in America. Mm -hmm. um, 
it just helps them because they it's something for them to look at and focus on and actually reduced some of their social anxiety because they focused on the phone for a second and then carried on with the class so it's it's interesting, you know, and what's the future of smartphones in the classroom? Maybe this is another purpose for them. Is it, it can be a distraction. And in this case, it ends the activity for this pair. But, um, yeah, it's very interesting, These this new technology coming in. And, again, with online teaching, all these things are changing and what we think are appropriate and expected behaviors in the classroom and what cues we have to look out for. Well, that's interesting because I, I'm doing sort of a side research project where I, where there's this class that we teach, you know, incoming high school seniors that are about to join the program and it's a voluntary class and they take a series of classes. And I found that they perform quite well if I just do sort of a deep end like really non sort of accepting of like those kind of behaviors and just sort of, I just set the expectations that I deem what I think should be done. And I find they respond so well just because they're like, oh, this is a new school and this is how they do it here. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to do it. Uh, but then as the year progresses and they, they're influenced by other students and, and then they start to do whatever they want. Yeah. And then there's the disconnect, like you said, oh, so maybe teachers, we need to be more accepting to to this coping me mechanism. And mm. there's the other side where it's like, well, they're kind of doing whatever they want. They're not listening to us. There's probably a balance somewhere. But I am curious about the expectations. And and it sounds like you're interested in that too, helping the, helping the incoming freshmen adjust. Uh, but it seems like I found that they, they do adjust quite well, in the first year students, but when they become second years, they, they, they talk to their older friends and they say, oh, you don't need to try hard in the class. Just don't worry about it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The second year blues. Um, yeah. The expert, I think um, students that are transitioning from high school to university, they want to know what's expected. They, I think they like kind of templates of how to communicate, how to behave. And it just reassures them like, clear cut this is what we have to do of course real life's not like that but I think sometimes in our context where we are working this kind of black and white um this lack of vagueness or I my in Japanese it, it they want that because it reduces their uncertainty and they do respond at the beginning <laughs> yeah well this is this is fascinating study and uh effort that you're you're putting forth and I'm sure in this virtual world, I'm going to be bumping into you every now and again. So it is nice to talk to you at real face-to-face. -face. I mean, not really. Voice-to-voice. Voice-to-voice, yes. Screen-to-screen. And uh, again, the paper is Observing Anxiety in the Foreign Language Classroom, Student Silence and Nonverbal Cues. This was published this year, 2020, in June. So quite recent. So congrat yeah. Congratulations. Any Any final thoughts on it? Thank you. Um, well, I was really thrilled to get two papers into this journal. It's a new journal, um, and I have presented at the conference as well. Um, unfortunately, this year's was postponed, but International Association for the Psychology of Language Learning is the association, and they do the Journal for Psychology of Language Learning. I think if you're interested 
anything to do with anxiety um, and these type of related research interests, this is a very important community to get involved with because there are great names that are taking part and leading this association. So I was thrilled to be able to get my paper and one more paper in here. Well, I hope to meet you in the future and uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. No, thank you very much for having me. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.